0: Going to happen. Stand by
1: playback. And now Lars. Lars. Real red meat radio. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly, provocative talk radio. More than half the
2: women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are
1: women. Lars. Never. of my for being a patriotic. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. My memory is so bad, I let you speak. Lars Larson.
3: Welcome back, the Lars Larson Show. Breaking news, uh, just a couple of hours ago, a rally and a parade in Kansas City to celebrate the Super Bowl win of the Chiefs, and one person is dead, and as many as 15 people wounded or injured after a shooting incident and, of course, uh, the police have managed to take a couple of people into custody. At this hour, uh, we are not able to say what was the motivation, what went on, what caused all of this. As we get more information, we will let you know. But out of Kansas City, the local police chief, Stacy Graves, is saying that at least one person has died, 10 to 15 others, including children have been injured or wounded in that incident. Some of those people are in critical condition. As we get more information, we will let you know what's happening. Glad to have you with me, though, on a Wednesday. And our thoughts and prayers go out to everybody in Kansas City about what has happened today and to the victims and to their families. Uh, we've just got to extend our thoughts and our prayers at this point. I know there are people who mock The idea that some of us actually believe that praying to God makes a difference. I know it makes a difference. So I'm going to extend my thoughts and prayers to everybody affected by this in Kansas City. I also want to talk about something strange that's going on on Capitol Hill. It involves a really interesting warning. I guess even a strange warning from the House Intelligence Committee chair. That's Mike Turner, who's a Republican member of Congress from Ohio, who came out today and said uh, that there is a national security risk, uh, some kind of threat to the United States. Now, that was immediately followed up by the White House saying, well, we can't tell you what it is, but Turner, the rep from Ohio, is saying the White House ought to immediately declassify this information and then tell the public what's going on. Now, members of Congress, the so-called Gang of Eight, they were planning to be briefed tomorrow in an intelligence briefing, um, and, and yet Mike Turner saw the need to come out today and say there is a threat, a serious national security threat. Those are Representative Turner's words, and that President Biden should declassify the information about it so that members of Congress can talk about it openly. Well, the White House comes out and tries to smooth the waters, and then Republican Speaker of the House Mike Johnson from Louisiana comes out and says, look, There's no need for public alarm. Well, that's not exactly satisfying if one member of Congress who's on the House Intelligence Committee says there is a serious national security threat. Tell the public about it, saying nothing to see here, folks, move along, is not exactly satisfying. And if there's something that President Biden or whoever it is that's actually calling the shots of the White House could say, let's declassify the info. Let's let the American public know what's going on. There's always a concern that if you release information that is otherwise closely held by our federal government that you might tip off the bad guys. And I don't want that to happen. But I would like to know what caused Representative Mike Turner, uh, chair of the House Intelligence Committee, to declare that there is a serious national security threat, that Joe Biden knows about it and has the power as president to declassify the information and tell us what's going on. I mean, what the heck is going on, President Biden? Or are you actually calling the shots? And when they went to the uh, NSA's guy, and that's uh, uh jake sullivan and said can you assure the american public that everything is okay he says well i can't exactly give you a yes again not a very satisfying answer so those two things to keep an eye on for the next few hours in the meantime Glad to have you with me for what we call the best conversation in talk journalism. If you want to join the conversation, it's easy to do. 866-HEY-LARS. And if you happen to be a naysayer, we've followed a tradition for more than a quarter century of saying that naysayers go to the head of the line. If you disagree with my take on one subject or another, you're free to express that opposition to my take. Just stick around for a couple of questions from me. We love naysayers on this program. Uh, We love the people who disagree with my point of view, because I believe that any argument that I make in favor of or against anything in the world, if it can't stand up to some good, tough questions or a counterpoint point of view, then I probably shouldn't be saying it. So just take that that to heart along with what I've told you, which is 866-439-5277. And if you're a naysayer, we'll treat you right. If you want to send me an email, talk at LarsLarson.com. And you can vote in our poll on X. Used to be called the Twitter poll. Now it's the poll on X. Should the White House release what I'm calling the elderly man with a bad memory transcript? And what am I talking about? Joe Biden sat down with the special counsel, the prosecutor from the DOJ, the special counsel, Robert Herr. And he gave her an interview of some several hours. And there's a transcript of that interview. Now, the White House would have you believe, well, it's been completely mischaracterized to say that President Biden comes off as an elderly man with a bad memory. Well, when he couldn't remember the years he was vice president seven years ago, uh, when he couldn't remember the year that his beloved son, Beau Biden, died, uh, and that was only nine years ago, you might say, yeah, he's got an especially bad memory, and if he's not prosecutable for the... Classified documents, crimes that he admits committing. And when I say that, I really wish the rest of the legacy media would describe this for what it is. They always want to use these bureaucratic terms like Senator Joe Biden withheld and retained and disseminated classified documents. He stole classified documents. I mean, imagine that just on his face, even without all the other nonsense we've had to put up with from Joe Biden. I mean, gigantic increases in gasoline prices, groceries up 26 percent, mortgage rates more than double. We've now uh, managed to extricate ourselves from Afghanistan at the cost of 13 American service member lives, thousands of Americans who were for a time trapped behind Taliban lines. Now we're in one war, and that's costing us tens of billions. We may end up at war with uh, with China, and we've got a war going on with our ally Israel in the Middle East, and we've got both American commercial shipping and American military ships coming under attack from terrorist organizations, which are funded. Because of Joe Biden. Joe Biden, who gave the relief of sanctions to the Iranians that put $50 billion in their pocket. Joe Biden, who unfroze the assets of the mad mullahs of Tehran. And they took a bunch of that money and promptly started to do what they've been doing for the last half century or so. And that is being the biggest state sponsor of terrorism on planet Earth, bar none. So Joe Biden pays to fund terrorist organizations that then attack Americans. Meanwhile, back at home, he admits on tape, he admits on video that he has stolen classified documents, that he's put national security at risk, that he's shared some of that information. Do you know what ordinarily happens to people who steal classified information? Ask Jack Texera, a young man in his 20s served in the Massachusetts National Guard He's sitting in jail right now, waiting trial for stealing classified documents and disseminating them. He's looking at 60 years in federal prison. Joe Biden is looking at retiring from the presidency, let's hope in January of next year, as a very, very wealthy multimillionaire because of his theft of information. And everybody seems to say, ho-hum, this is just the way things go. So Should the White House release the elderly man with a bad memory transcript? I'd answer that one yes. It's brought to you by AMAC, a great conservative group. Join them at amac.us. AMAC is better, better for you and better for America. Coming up in a moment, the Trump versus Colorado case heard before the Supreme Court last week. Is it a slam dunk for President Trump? We'll talk about it next.
1: Sometimes the listeners say it best. Hey, Lars, love
0: your show, and I really appreciate Thank you. what you do, boy. You cover you. more territory in an afternoon than a lonely bedroom in
1: springtime. Who's next? This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome
3: back to the program. It's a pleasure to be with you, and always a pleasure to welcome back our friend Jim Burling, Vice President of Legal Affairs for Pacific Legal Foundation. Jim, how are you? Hey, I'm doing very well, Lars. Thanks for asking. I always confess to my audience, uh, maybe it's a bragging point that I'm not a lawyer, but it, 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 am I showing my non-lawyer status and my naivete if I think that the uh, Supreme Court hearing the the case on Trump being removed from the ballot in Colorado and hearing the oral arguments last Wednesday are going to lead to a slam dunk and maybe even a 9 to nothing decision in Donald Trump's favor? Yeah,
4: I really think that the court was highly skeptical of a state like Colorado just freelancing on its own, doing something that could have a tremendous impact not only on what happens in Colorado, but the rest of the nation. And every member of the court, liberal and conservative alike, seemed to be very skeptical of Colorado's argument that it had the power to decide who's going to be on the ballot based on the so-called insurrection clause in the Constitution. Uh, the, the court
3: was very skeptical of Colorado's power to do that. I guess the thing that makes me wonder from, from the outside of this, so we had, was it every single state had a lawsuit that was aimed at removing D- uh, President Trump's name from the ballot, or, or were there a couple missing? Because I, it seemed uh, to me well, that there were suits there seems be everywhere. an
4: increasing number. There, there may be one or two around, say, the southern states that don't have that uh, option or haven't So, but... You have at least several dozen states where this has moved along quite a bit. In some states, it was rejected. In two states, Maine, through the Secretary of State in Colorado, already Trump has been told that he could not be on the ballot. And now everyone, I think, is just waiting to see what the U.S. Supreme Court is going to do when it hears a Colorado case. If the U.S. Supreme Court finds that Colorado could do this to keep Trump off the ballot, you can bet a lot of other states are going to follow in line. But of course, if the Supreme Court says, no, Colorado, you really didn't have this power. It's not in the Constitution. Then I think that's going to be pretty much the end of
3: it for for the time being. For anyway. for all of those states, isn't it? I mean, wouldn't this? Uh, I mean, wouldn't it effectively say to all of the states that are even thinking? Or are we going to see just a series of one after another states having to be dragged up to the Supreme Court? Or will they take a message if the Supreme Court comes back and says? Colorado, you can't do this. Are we going to see Maine say, well, we did it a different way, so we're going to go ahead and forge ahead and just to burn legal time and lawyer hours?
4: I don't think that's going to happen, depending on what the Supreme Court says. But if the Supreme Court says that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, the insurrection clause, can only lead to litigation if Congress has an enabling statute, that's one of the big arguments that have been made here that look we have the insurrection clause but unless and until congress passes a statute allowing a state to keep somebody off the ballot then no state can bring such a lawsuit after the civil war there was such an enabling statute congress did have a law saying states could keep people off the ballot but that was repealed in 1948 and i think the court's going to say look if that's if the if congress wants it it can do it but until then Nobody can bring
3: this kind of lawsuit. And in fact, my research, which isn't as good as lawyer for research, but it doesn't cost as much money either. Um, but but when I looked you get into what it, you pay for Lars. Well, I know. I know. I know. And that's what I tell my audience. They get what they pay for. But it seemed to me that they didn't have a single case after the Civil War of somebody who was a former Confederate general or one of the other participants uh, from the South even trying to violate this. Did they?
4: Well, oh, they had actually a few. Jefferson Davis, there was a lawsuit involved him uh, where the court was somewhat ambiguous whether he should be able to go forward or not. And there were some other Confederates that were kept off. Eventually, it became a moot point because Congress passed an Amnesty Act, essentially giving amnesty to all the Confederate soldiers and people that were in the wrong side or the losing side of the Civil War. So it really never got to the U.S. Supreme Court to have a firm and definitive decision. There was a decision from a Supreme Court justice when he was sitting in a lower court saying that a person could not uh, bring a lawsuit to keep somebody off the ballot without Congress passing a statute. Congress passed a statute, and that's pretty much the end of
3: it. Okay, so you don't have an enabling statute at the federal level, and you can't do it civilly. You can't do it as a private party coming in to sue somebody to be off. Wasn't the primary problem the fact that Donald Trump's never been indicted for insurrection and could have been indicted by the DOJ, the Biden DOJ, and was never indicted? The closest they came was the impeachment, which accused him of insurrection, and he was acquitted in that case. Isn't the fact that he's never been accused, never been tried, and only accused generically once in an impeachment for which he was acquitted? So aren't they missing the essential element to say, He's guilty of insurrection. Really? When was he accused? When was when, when was he tried? How did you decide this American President Trump was guilty of this crime that he's never been accused of? So what Colorado and other states are supporters of keeping
4: him off the ballot keep on saying is that you don't have to have a criminal conviction in order to find somebody guilty of insurrection under the 14th Amendment. Uh, it's a huge <laughs> debatable question. <laughs> And I think the court really wants to avoid that question of what has to be done to prove somebody has been uh, violating or engaging in insurrection, because it's really ambiguous what that requires. A lot of people are saying, just like you, Lars, you have to have a criminal conviction. Other lawyers and law professors say, no, you don't have to have a criminal conviction. You have to have a state make that determination. But how do you make that determination? So the court, I think, really wants to get away from that. I think they want to rule that, no, the state can't get into this issue at all. Stay away from it. And as a backup, perhaps President Trump is not an officer under the terms of the 14th Amendment that would be subject to the insurrection clause. That's something that Justice Jackson was asking a lot of questions about. But I think the court really wants to avoid trying to determine how or or setting the standards for how you determine whether somebody's an
3: insurrectionist or not well let me ask you let's assume that you know from my non-lawyer point of view that they come up with a nine to nothing decision colorado was wrong president trump is right he's on the ballot knock it off does this pretty well resolve the issue not just for now but for the future because i've seen some people and i don't think it's a good idea have said well if trump can be removed from the ballot let's have some red states remove biden i don't think that's a good idea I think we should let the people decide who they want to vote for, and not deny them the right to vote for somebody, even if it's a nitwit like Joe Biden. But but does this put it to rest, not just for now, but for future election cycles?
4: Yeah, it really should. It should again, unless and until Congress passes a law saying that a state can keep somebody off the ballot for insurrection or whatever, uh, it's just not going to happen. And I agree. The idea that red states would do a tit-for-tat thing makes no sense. Let's just put up the best candidates we have. And frankly, uh, we have uh, potentially, you know, we've got 350 million people in the United States. If the Democrats are worried that President Biden can't uh, win against president, former President Trump, then maybe the Democrats can come up with a better candidate among those 350 million people. You know, maybe only half of them are eligible to be president. But certainly we can they can find
3: somebody else. I'm talking to Jim Burling from Pacific Legal. One last thing. I keep seeing news reports that say the special counsel, uh, Robert Hur uh, has cleared Joe Biden in the classified documents case. My read of it is they expect, they came as close to finding him guilty as they could. They said he willfully retained classified documents that he knew he knew for a fact he had no right to take. To me, that's not clearing him. Saying that he's an elderly man with a poor memory that would be looked on sympathetically by a jury is not clearing him. Have I got that wrong? You know, you're absolutely right. Look, a lot of prosecutors will look at a case and figure, you
4: know, we know this guy is guilty. But we also know that we just don't have enough evidence to prove it in court. Or the person, the defendant, is going to be so sympathetic that a jury is going to rule in this person's favor. So they don't bring prosecution. But that doesn't mean he's not guilty. That doesn't clear him. And certainly President Biden uh, was not cleared of violating the statutes dealing with classified documents. The conclusion that her came up with is that, no, we, just, we don't think we could win a case, so we're not going to bring it.
3: Unbelievable. Jim Berling, who is with Pacific Legal Foundation, its vice president. Thank you so much, Jim. Back in a moment, we'll talk about the new information about that Russia collusion case. The
5: Lars Larson Show.
1: if Sleepy Joe was on Jeopardy.
3: This man, also known as the worst president in United States history, loves ice cream, lounging on beaches and sniffing children.
1: Joe. Uh, Who is me? Wait, where am I? This is the Lars Larson Show.
0: The biggest scandal was when they spied on my campaign They spied on my campaign. There's no real evidence of that. Of course there is. It's all
1: over
3: the place. It's all over the place. Now, do you remember when Donald Trump on 60 Minutes talking to Leslie Stahl, who's not much of a reporter in my estimation, and he told her they spied on my campaign? And Leslie Stahl said, no, 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 there's no evidence of that because it seems she's about six kinds of nitwit. And she denied the fact that all of the rest of us had read plenty of evidence that Donald Trump was being spied on. And what do we know about today? We know that the CIA, we know that the FBI obtained wiretap warrants on Carter Page and other people so that it could spy on the Donald Trump team. And if you say, well, Lars, we know about that. We've known about that for some time. Here's what we didn't know, and I want to give full and lavish credit to uh, some people who uh, actually one or two of them have been on the show in years gone by, but they're fantastic journalists. Matt, or sorry, Michael Schellenbarger, Matt T. Abbey, and you've seen him testify before Congress, and Alex Gutentag. And what did they break last night? One of the biggest stories you could ever imagine. Because, and, and I, don't, I, I just say this because, listen, I love telling you about what's going on in these various stories, because most of the mainstream media doesn't want to touch this stuff, even though I think I can say, after almost five decades in the news business, this story has everything. It has national figures. It has a presidential election. It has the involvement of the CIA and the FBI. It has collusion hoaxes. It's got everything in it. And you'd say, well, why wouldn't a newsroom want to report on that? And then when you find this out, And again, full credit to those journalists who broke this last night. The CIA had some of our foreign allies spy on Donald Trump's campaign team. And that's what triggered the Russia collusion hoax. And just to remind you of the basics of that one, the Russia collusion hoax went this way. Um, Hillary Clinton's campaign paid and the DNC paid. Paid to have a company called Fusion GPS, which is an organization that will dig dirt on just about anybody. If you're running for public office, they will dig the dirt on your opponent. And they hired a, believe it or not, sounds like it came out of a bad B movie, a former British secret agent, Christopher Steele. And what was Steele's job? His job was to come up with some dirt on Donald Trump. Well, apparently they couldn't have find enough real dirt, so they put together something that became known famously or infamously as the Steel dossier. And it contained all kinds of weird stuff. Prostitutes urinating on a hotel bed in Moscow. You know, all kinds of bizarre stuff. And uh, I guess they figured, well, nobody's going to bother to check this. Well, what they found out was when they came back to the United States with all this garbage, much of it from Russia. And they tried to get American news organizations to bite on the steel dossier. The American news organizations took one look at it and did what I think I would have done. I wasn't offered it. But I would have looked at this and said, all of that stuff is so crazy and so sketchy. If there isn't some proof positive, I'm not touching it with a 10-foot pole. But how did that come to be? Well, it turns out that sources say, and this is from Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger and Alex Gutentag. They targeted 26 different Trump campaign advisors, and then they didn't want to do the spying directly because the CIA was probably concerned about getting caught. So what they included was the organization called Five Eyes. Now, what Five Eyes is, it's a cooperative arrangement between the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. So these are different spying organizations that work on behalf of those five nations. and they call themselves so, they call them the Five Eyes Nations, so that if Australia gets some information intelligence and they share it with the other four parties, that they keep those countries safe. That's theoretically what they would do with it. It was not designed to be used against American political candidates, uh, although it appears that the CIA decided we've got to take out Donald Trump. So as they write, until now, the official story has been that the FBI's investigation began of Donald Trump and the Russia collusion allegations after Australian intelligence officials told the U.S. that a Trump aide had boasted to an Australian diplomat that Russia had damning information about Democrat presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. In truth, the U.S. Intelligence Committee asked, or community, Asked the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance to surveil Donald Trump's campaign advisors and share the intelligence they got with the U.S. So the CIA can say we didn't spy on Donald Trump, but the other four members of their intelligence group, the Five Eyes, uh, had spied for them. And as they explain... After both Public and Racket, which are two uh, journalism organizations that operate independently of the major networks and the major newspapers, after they'd been told that President Barack Obama's CIA director, John Brennan, had identified 26 Trump associates for five eyes to target. In other words, we're going to keep an eye on these guys. And the minute we find something that we can use as a predicate. Now, do you know how a predicate works? There are, in fact, legitimate uses. I would say there are legitimate uses. Uh, when I'd go on ride-alongs with police uh, officers, uh, they'd say, I think this guy, he's got something going on. Maybe may be a drug dealer, maybe a gangbanger, but I need to be able to have a reason to pull him over. So he waits until the guy does not signal for a turn. Or he waits until the guy, you know, runs through the tail end of a yellow light and it becomes red. And he says, there's our there's our reason. We can pull him over for that. Once they pull him over, they're able to, you know, question him, take a look in the car, things like that. That's what a predicate is. You have to have a legal basis. So at the very beginning of this, long before we ever thought the CIA was involved, And the CIA, as I explained, was able to say, we didn't spy on him. We just had our friends spy on him, and now we use the information. And who was involved? CIA Director John Brennan. Do you recognize that name? So they go out and they target 26 of Donald Trump's campaign advisors, and they identify them as people to bump or make contact with and try to manipulate they're targets of our own intelligence community and law enforcement, targets for collection and uh, information about the FBI's investigation of the Trump campaign and raw intelligence related to the intelligence committee's uh, community surveillance of the Trump campaign. They are in a 10-inch binder of information that Donald Trump ordered to be declassified at the very end of his term. I would suggest to you that one of the reasons, if you wondered When the FBI staged that dramatic raid on Mar-a-Lago, they made sure that Donald Trump was out of town before they staged the raid. And they said, why, we're going after classified documents that Donald Trump has taken and held illegally at Mar-a-Lago. You know what I think they were looking for? They were looking for that binder. Because what Donald Trump did as he left office was he said, I need to have the information that proves that the CIA And the FBI and the Obama administration and the Biden administration and Hillary Clinton are all dirty in this, that they were all involved, that they all had some level of knowledge, that they allowed this to go on. The people in power using intelligence agencies and law enforcement investigative agencies like the FBI to target a political campaign to hold on to power. This is the kind of thing that you would assume happens in places like communist China or Soviet Russia or in Venezuela or in Cuba, that the government people in power use the power and the authority they have to hang on to power. Except now we're finding out, according to this great piece by Michael Schellenbarger and Matt Tiavi, uh that it was probably happening in the 2016 and 2020 elections. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. And at long last, in my view, impeached DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas over his failure to enforce border laws. I would add to that his lies to Congress, his violation of U.S. laws, his violation of U.S. policies when it comes to illegal aliens and facilitating the invasion of America by illegal aliens that I believe that Joe Biden has actually signed off on and made a campaign promise that he would throw the doors open. So if the Senate... Uh, Whether they hold the trial for the impeachment or not, is this overall a win for the American people? I thought we'd ask Alfonso Aguilar, who's the director of Hispanic Engagement for the American Principles Project. Alfonso, welcome back to the program. Lars, it's a pleasure to be with you. I was happy the day that we heard finally that the vote had been taken and that Mayorkas had been uh, impeached. I wasn't happy that some of the Republicans sold out on this, but I want to get your take on it as well.
6: Right. Well, it's certainly a historic day. I mean, it is sad, but at the same time necessary. It's time for Congress to hold accountable um, the officials of of the federal government. If they're not going to enforce the law, if they're going to violate their oath of office, uh, we have to hold them accountable. And this hasn't happened since the end of the 19th century, but it's absolutely necessary. Lars, I worked in the Homeland Security Department during the Bush years. I was the chief of the Office of Citizenship. Yes, sir. And I was proud to serve. But I understood that I had a responsibility to the American people to enforce the law. And for the life of me, this guy has arrived and has done whatever he wanted, ignored the law, and basically opened the doors to this invasion. Because it is an invasion. We have never seen this m- massive invasion influx of people uh, into the country in our history I would say is it, it, in recent history is the la- largest movement of people uh, in the world in recent history think about it over 10 million people mostly from Latin America but now from all over the world from China from the Middle East making the trip south to our border it's really incredible and this guy has facilitated it and not only that, He's lied to Congress continuously saying that the border secure, that the border's under control when it's clearly not.
3: Well, Alfonso, one of the things I'm curious about is that I've had a few people say, Lars, you're shooting at the wrong guy. It should be Biden. Biden gave the orders. But Secretary Mayorkas Uh, I mean, if somebody came to me in my my tiny little business, uh, you know, talk radio is not going to get anybody killed or it's not going to cause an invasion of the country. But if somebody came to me, my boss, and said, hey, I want you to do something illegal or immoral, I'd simply say no. And he said, I insist you do it. I say, fine, you can fire me, but I'm not going to do it. Is there anybody within Homeland Security who's willing to do that if Majorcas is not willing to stand up to his boss and say, boss, you're asking me to break the law. And you're asking me to let millions of people into a country in violation of American law. And if you insist on it, I'll simply tender my resignation. Or is this just a guy who says, whatever the team tells me to do is what I'm going to do? No, he's directly
6: responsible. Uh, Obviously, he can stand up to the president, but the president can give you a general direction. As secretary of Homeland Security, you're the one that comes up with the administrative rules, with the policy measures at the border, Uh, to deal with the influx of migrants. So it was his decision uh, to liberalize the asylum process, to allow more people in. He's the one who set up this system where anybody who shows up at the border, surrenders to the border patrol and says, I'm afraid that I'm gonna be persecuted, even though they may have absolutely no claim to asylum, they're told, come on in. (laughs) That is a system that he set up and he's directly responsible for that. And then the second point is going to Congress, as you know, on numerous occasions, and with a straight face saying, the board is under control. <laughs> I mean, it's just really incredible. So I think this is an important step because we're saying we're gonna hold accountable our uh, public officials. I hope there is a trial, I think there should be a trial, and that will also be an opportunity uh, in the Senate, exactly, to, to, to have a conversation about what this administration, what Mayorkas has done to send a message throughout the world that the doors are open, that you can come in, just show up at the border, and we're going to let you in. Think about it. Over 10 million people are, have arrived at our border. Mallorcas recently in a meeting with a private meeting with the border Patrol, with border Patrol officials said that about 85% of them are being allowed in. So we're talking, I, I don't know in recent history, really, of the of a, of a movement of people of this scale. Think about it. Ten million people from all over the world going through our southern border. This is craziness. It's an invasion. And we certainly have to do something about well, it.
3: Well, it's funny because, Alfonso, a few years ago when we were seeing a lot of people exiting Syria, and they were fleeing into into Europe. Yeah. And some of them would show up in Greece, and they'd show up in Sicily, and they'd show up yeah. in Italy. And then they say, but I don't want to be here. I want to be in Germany or Sweden or Finland in or Germany. some other place. Yeah. And And I remember saying at the time, it went on for a while, and then a lot of those countries started throwing up the kind of barrier that any conservative in America would be happy about. Lots of razor wire, lots of physical barriers to stop people. Right. And I said, what if that ever happens to us? And of course, it has happened not because I was so prescient, but because, because I wasn't. I was just saying that same thing could happen to us, and yet we we didn't do anything about it. And th- the actions on behalf of Mayorkas to say we're going to expand uh, humanitarian parole far beyond what the Congress said was allowable. I wish they'd hold a trial too. And if the Biden, you know, if the Democrats and, the, and Joe Biden and his White House staff say, "Oh no, Mayorkas has done no wrong," fine. <coughs> put up the defense in the Senate, show that the impeachment was completely out of line. Except I don't expect they're going to do that. Do you? Uh, no,
6: but, but let me say that comparison with, 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 with Syrians uh, is just very on point. And I've used it in the past because at that time, remember, people were talking about this displacement of Syrians going into Europe and heading into Germany. And this large number of people, all the Europeans were scared. Proportionally, what we are seeing in America is much bigger, yep. much bigger. And it was interesting because we know that in Syria, Vladimir Putin weaponized migration, right? Well, that's what Chavez, Ortega, Nicaragua, sorry, not Chavez, Maduro in Venezuela, Ortega and Nicaragua, that's what they're doing. They're encouraging people to make the trip to our southern border, to destabilize the region, and destabilize the U.S., and if you see some of the Venezuelans as they're starting to come in, are members of gangs, the the Venezuelans that beat up that New York City officer, uh, and and then other incidents that we've seen in this past days so of Venezuelans, gang members involved in violence. So this is really dangerous. This is not something that is just happening, uh, uh, you know. Our, opponent, our enemies see our, our vulnerabilities. And when yep. Biden opens the door to migration, they're going to take the opportunity. So we're seeing a lot of the individuals involved in crime, certainly uh, an increased number of people on the terrorist list.
3: Alfonso, I'm going to have to break it to the top of the hour, but Alfonso Aguilar from the American Principles Project.
5: The Lars Larson Show.
1: I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly, provocative talk radio. More than half
2: the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the team in my cabinet, more than half the women in, in my administration
1: are women. Lars. Never apologize for being a patriotic. Our beloved
3: republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day.
1: No, here's your host. My memory is so bad I let you speak. Lars Larson.
3: Welcome back to the Lars Larson show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Wednesday and an update on the terrible tragedy that has occurred in Kansas City. They were holding a parade and a rally to celebrate the Kansas City Chiefs uh, Super Bowl win and a shooting took place. We don't know what caused that shooting what was motivating that shooting we do know that suspects are in custody apparently three of them is the word at this hour that one person is dead and 21 others are wounded or or injured and that includes children as well as we get more information we'll likely have much more by tomorrow but as of tonight One person is dead. Twenty other, 21 others, are wounded or injured, and that includes children. And suspects are now in custody. As we get more information, we'll be glad to share it with you. Glad to have you with me on a Wednesday on the Lars Larson Show. Uh, I want to mention, well, let me go to our naysayer caller first, uh, and then we'll get to a few other things that are going on. A shout-out to our friends in San Antonio, Texas, where you can listen to great talk radio all day on Trey Ware's station, and that's KTSA, AM 550 in san antonio and of course you can find my show there as well the poll on x tonight should the white house release what i'm calling the elderly man with a bad memory transcript in other words, the sit-down interview between Joe Biden and Robert Hur, special counsel, who determined that, yes, Joe Biden did break federal law and stole classified documents and then disseminated them to people with no security clearance, but uh, he can't be prosecuted because a jury would view him as an elderly man with a bad memory and they would be too sympathetic. So not worth prosecuting him. Move along, folks. So should the White House have to release the transcript, of the elderly man with a bad memory? My answer to that is yes. You can find the poll on X at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. Uh, brought to you by AMAC. It's a great conservative group I joined years and years ago. You can too. Just go to amac.us or call aaa 2006 AMAC's better. Better for you and better for America. Uh, we always put naysayers to the head of the line. So, Steve, welcome to the program. What do you and I disagree about that makes you a naysayer?
7: Hey, Lars. Hey, yeah, in a perfect world, we'd agree. But you keep saying we shouldn't take Joe Biden's name off the ballot like they're doing with Trump. Uh, if we don't make the Democrats live by the same rules that we're having to live by, I mean, it's like getting into a boxing match and you wear your gloves and the other guy's got a gun.
3: Except that our hold on, well. Steve, our, yeah. our case, our cases that Donald Trump's name should not have been removed from the ballot. And even if the Supreme Correct. Court says it should, is it a smart move to say to the Democrats, then we're going to turn around and take your guy's name off the ballot as well? If the Supreme Court says it's okay for states to do that, if the Democrats do something stupid, should the Republicans follow suit and and do something stupid? Or should we leave the Democrat Party stuck with an absolutely pathetic candidate in the form of Joe Biden? And
7: and until the Supreme Court rules, we need to push forward with it to get ourselves set up, because if the Supreme Court doesn't rule in the Republicans' favor, then all of a sudden we've got to start the process.
3: I would only ask you this, Steve. Steve, do you think the idea of this country is that the government gets its gets the consent of the people to govern, that the government only governs with the consent of the people? If we as conservatives, more so than Republicans, if we as conservatives say we will deny voters in America the chance to vote for Joe Biden. Is that an American approach? Is that a constitutional approach to government, to self-government, to say, if we don't like a candidate, we'll just remove him from the ballot, whether it's legal or not?
7: No, that's not the way we should be running, but that's not the way the world is working right now. Just like the impeachment process, Trump should have never been impeached. There was no case for either one of them. Agree. we're finally making the Democrats live up to their, our, their own standards by impeaching
3: Mayorkas. Yeah, but that's within the system. That's saying Mayorkas has committed crimes, high crimes and misdemeanors. The House of Representatives voted to impeach him. The Senate will try to, uh, because they're run by Democrats, the Senate will try to ignore it and not even hold a trial or force Democrat senators to vote to say, no, Mayorkas did nothing wrong. Because I know that there are people who view that as a political position. I'd merely ask you, if you walk down the street of any city in America, and especially Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, and Washington, D.C., and said to them, do you think the Homeland Security Secretary is doing his job as all of those cities are being overrun by illegal alien invaders and, in many cases, criminals? Do you think you'd get very many people saying, oh, yeah, Moriarty is doing his job. He should keep his job.
7: No, but Congress should have stepped in and pushed the point to where he is either kicked out or forced to do his job. But they're not doing that.
3: Well, they are. So they voted to impeach him. It now goes to the Senate for impeach, a trial. But the Senate's never going to hear the case. And, and here's what I, I would they suggest, Steve. The case, not I want hear, everybody not in America. Everybody in America has one of those. Has two senators. I would urge you all to to call the offices of Democrat senators and say. Is my senator or are my senators going to have a trial about whether or not Majorcas is guilty of violating the law and lying to Congress? And if you're not, tell me why not. You start piling up those phone calls at the offices of Democrats, especially those Democrat senators who are from states that are a little more on the middle. They're not, they're not deep blue. They're not deep red, but they're right in the middle. Can you imagine the reaction of a U.S. senator, a Democrat, believes If we don't answer the people on this one, I'm going to be out at the next election. That is the point of leverage that American citizens have to do that kind of thing. And on the other hand, I'm going to just respectfully disagree with you and say Republicans should not remove Joe Biden from the ballot. What the Democrats did was un-American. It was illegal. It was unconstitutional. And you can't exactly stand on the high ground and say that wasn't legal. And that wasn't constitutional, what you did to President Trump. But because you did it, we're going to do it, too, because I don't think it works that way. I want us to be able to say we're not the people who are scared to death, so scared of the other candidate that we want him removed from the ballot so that nobody has the chance to vote for him. But, Steve, you're a good naysayer, and I appreciate the call. By the way, my friend Paul Gallo. Now, you hear him on the Supertalk Network in Mississippi. He pointed this out to me, and this is a great win for the state of Mississippi, which is a great state. It now has risen to the top 20 on the list of the 17th most sought-after state in America for net migration. In other words, people are moving to Mississippi. Now, Mississippi has attracted about 12,000 more residents than it lost in 2022, And they say that's a significant influx. The top states fueling interstate moves, where are people moving to? To Tennessee, where my friend Todd Starnes lives, to Louisiana, to Alabama and then mississippi coming in right there in the middle and then texas and florida and why are so many people moving to mississippi the magnolia state they say the housing affordability and the booming job market are big draws to people who are coming there they are fleeing from the blue states they're headed toward the red states homes are about forty four percent more affordable in Mississippi than in Tennessee, 42% cheaper than in Texas, and 55% less to buy a house than it is in Florida. Back in a moment, you've got the Lars Larson Show.
1: something on the Lars Larson Show? Check out posted interviews and podcasts at LarsLarson.com.
3: Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to take your phone calls and your emails at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. I mentioned yesterday the passing of a great American hero. Uh, I told you that his name was Sergeant Chuck Mahoney. Uh, that is that was his name he passed away yesterday he was in the United States Marine Corps went off to Vietnam in 1968 he got his draft notice in 67 turned out he was a crack shot and that's before he arrived at the US Marine Corps sniper school uh, they then sent him to Vietnam he was there 16 months and in those 16 months he scored more than 300 confirmed and probable kills it's a total number because it's 103 confirmed kills, 216 probable kills for a total of of 319 both confirmed and probable kills. You know that every time a sniper like Chuck Mawinnie managed to connect with a target, and apparently he did more than every other U.S. Marine Corps sniper in American history, that he was likely saving the lives of at least one and maybe scores of fellow Marines who would have come under fire from those people. He came home from the war. He got a job uh, working as a forest ranger. He served 30 years doing that for the U.S. Forest Service. He passed away yesterday at the age of 75. Rest in peace, Sergeant Chuck Mawinney, the deadliest sniper in U.S. Marine Corps history. Glad to have you with me. If you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line, as you can tell by listening to the show at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at com. Couple of outrageous things I don't want to share with you. And then I want to talk about Shot Spotter, which is a program and a a service that the city of Chicago decided to avail itself of because it might actually help the police get to the people who are doing all the dozens of shootings that seem to happen every single week in the city of Chicago. They're getting rid of it, and they're getting rid of it out of racial bias. And I'll explain that in just a moment. First. You know, a lot of us have been complaining about the homeless encampments that seem to have taken up uh, residence in virtually every city in America. The bigger the city, the bigger the homeless camps. Uh, The city of Los Angeles has an estimated 50,000 people who are living on the streets in shanties and tents and simply sleeping in doorways. And not because of poverty. They're there primarily because of drugs, number one. And the second biggest reason is mental illness and sometimes a combination of the two. So guess what happens when parts of downtown Sacramento end up with all the homeless camps cleaned up? Except it's the city doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. They have removed the homeless camps from a place called Cesar Chavez Park. But they're doing it because Leonardo DiCaprio is filming a movie and they need the homeless camps out of the way so the movie can be made. Homeless camps, they say, are prevalent. Uh, this is from Fox 40 in Sacramento, uh, near Cesar Chavez, where some of the movie filming is to be done. City of Sacramento took action for the film crew and placed notices on tents last Friday that advised campers they have 24 hours to pack up and leave. So, in other words, the city of Sacramento, the seat of government for the state of California, I don't live there, and thank God I don't. But this is the government of California saying that when citizens, ordinary citizens, complain about homeless camps because of the garbage and the filth and the human waste and the needles and the crime and everything else that goes to those homeless camps, nothing much happens. But when Hollywood says, hey, we'll put part of your city in a movie, all of a sudden the city of Sacramento officials spring into action. Now, if you were a resident of that town, I think you should have the same reaction to that that, say, people in New York City have when they see the city of New York acting quickly to provide for the needs of tens of thousands of illegal aliens, many of them criminals, while they're not providing for the needs of the people who actually live and pay taxes and are productive citizens in places like New York City. City of Sacramento spokesman Tim Watson says six tents were noticed in the filming area. Through outreach and engagement, people in the area were offered services in connection and replacement to the city's Roseville Road campus. They're now calling it like a college campus. Watson said that four campers accept the city's offer, and they moved them out of the way because Hollywood wanted them out of the way. The second outrage is this. The uh, university, uh, St. Louis University, was built almost 200 years ago. And there is now a group that points out that almost 200 years ago, 1823 through 1865, is when most of St. Louis University was built. And it was built with slave labor at the time. Remember, 1823 to 1865. And now this group, which is called DSLUE, Uh, joined in with a state lawmaker, likely a Democrat, a civil rights attorney, and a bunch of economists have totaled up the bill. They say that the 70 enslaved people that they claim worked on building the campus 24 hours a day, 365 days a year for 70 enslaved people. Now, that sounds like a physical impossibility to me. But even if you accept those numbers, The Economist has now testified that $365 million in unpaid labor is now owed to those 70 slaves that worked on the campus 200 years ago. And you say, well, hold on a second. They're not around anymore. So who's asking for the money? They are saying that with interest and over time, that $365 million, a third of a billion dollars, has now risen to $74 billion. And the descendants from 200 years ago Of the people who worked as slaves on the building of St. Louis University are now owed a total of seven. And one of the people who announced this attempt to extort this money uh, for the University of Missouri, uh, they say, We're not asking for a handout. They say, We're just asking for what's owed to us. And this is how reparations are going to go. I would suggest. We tell them you have no claim or anything else. Now, let me mention what has happened with the city of Chicago and a technology called Shot Spotter, which actually I think is fantastic technology. I have no connection to the company that's involved, but here's how it works. You know that if you're out hunting, and I've been out hunting a number of times, and you hear a shot in the distance, you may be able to roughly tell where that shot's coming from, but if three different people were able to triangulate on that shot, in other words, even just using your ears, you'd be able to say, okay, we know that the shot came from about there. Here's where technology comes in. If you place microphones in various places around a city, especially in the areas that are most beset by criminal gang shootings, you can triangulate Very quickly, in just seconds, you can figure out exactly where that shot originated. Now, if you take that information and quickly get it to police in cars in the area, you can get to right to right to where the shot originated. Now, this has two effects. Number one, if a police car is, say, two or three or five blocks away and dispatch says there was a shooting at 23rd and Main Street, you know, 10 seconds ago or 60 seconds ago, they say that the information is relayed within 60 seconds to the police on the street. Then you can get to where the shot was fired. You may be able to arrest the person who did the shooting. That's one. Number two, as it becomes known to the criminals who are out doing this kind of thing, if they know the police can quickly zero in, on the exact location of that shooter within 60 seconds, some of those criminals might be might be less likely to engage in those shootings. Uh, Chicago has non-fatal gunshot victims that happen at a rate of 46 for every 100,000 population. That is an extraordinary level of violence that's going on there. But now the mayor Mayor Brandon Johnson's office has said that they are discontinuing the contract. It will not be renewed as it expires this week. And why? Because Brandon Johnson says that when you use ShotSpotter, too many of the people that are found to have fired shots illegally, criminally, and dangerously within the city of Chicago, too many of those people are people of color. So they're going to simply stop using the system back in a moment. I'll get to your phone calls and your emails. And is a biological male now stealing championships from the hands of female high jumpers in New Hampshire? We'll give you this latest example. The Lars Larson Show.
5: a walk around your neighborhood
1: honestly provocative talk radio
3: here's lars larson welcome back to the lars larson show it's a pleasure to be with you on a wednesday and if you want to jump into the best conversation in talk journalism I'm glad to have you. 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line, as you've heard us do so many times. Just have your ducks in a row and be prepared to answer a few questions as well. 866-HEY-LARS or 866-439-5277. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. You can sample our wares uh, at Instagram, and you can also check out our feeds. We stream and podcast the shows. All the interviews we do are also up at lars. Larson.com and it doesn't cost anything to go there. Our poll on X tonight. Should the White House release the transcript of the elderly man with a bad memory? Of course I'm referring to Joe Biden. I would answer that one yes. You can answer any way you like. You'll find the question on X at Lars Larson Show brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I believe in. I join. You should too. Just go to AMAC.US or call Triple Eight Two Six Two Two Thousand Six 262 2006 AMAC is better, better for you and better for America. Now, yesterday, I asked you an X poll question that was based on comments by one of the candidates running for U.S. Senate in the state of California. Barbara Lee, currently a member of Congress, has suggested that California must adopt a minimum wage of $50 an hour because that's what it costs to live in one of the most expensive cities in America, which is San Francisco. Now, does that make any sense? Does it even make any sense? So I framed the question this way, and I think it's fair. Should some American cities set the minimum wage at $50 an hour? Now, I said no. Uh, 89% of you joined me in that no vote. But 11% said yes. And I just guess I would wonder, for those 11% who were naysayers, who decided, no, it's a good idea, $50 an hour. Can you tell me this? How many services do you think would still be left in a city with a $50 minimum wage? If you had to pay everyone who works in retail, everyone who works in a convenience store, everyone who works at a fast food joint, everybody who works in a parking garage or a car wash or any of the other jobs that you might expect to pay minimum wage or close to minimum wage, if you had to pay everybody who worked in those jobs a hundred thousand dollars a year if they're working full-time for you how many of those businesses would still be in business if you eleven percent who said yes to the idea um were, were actually to achieve your dream and say we're going to pay people a hundred thousand dollars a year to serve fast food or to uh, be a barista and make coffee or to drive in uber or lyft or the rideshare services now From emails, Greg writes in, Lars, I'm not a fan of Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas, and I'm glad to see that he may be fired for not doing a good job. But isn't this a case of shooting the messenger? I think I recall the so-called president put Vice President Harris in charge of the border. Yes, Joe Biden did that with Kamala Harris. Shouldn't the Republicans be calling out the manager of this team for failing the company? Yes, they should. Harris is, as most management does, keeping her job while being such a failure. The Republicans can't just seize the opportunities. I agree with you, but you know what should have happened? The first day that Joe Biden told Majorcas go in and violate the law, grant humanitarian parole, grant asylum status in the United States, and let 10 million people cross our border illegally, the minute he got that, if he were any kind of American, Mayorkas would have said, Mr. President, I will not violate the law. I will not lie to the American people. I will not lie under oath to Congress. I won't do it. If you want me to do the job, I will do the job. But if you want me to break the law and lie to the people and lie to the Congress, I won't do it. Mayorkas didn't do that. It shows that he is a man without any kind of honor, and I can't support that. In this case, go after Mayorkas and then go after Sleepy Joe as well. And our question of the day, Lars, the Republicans are accused of not wanting to fix the border problem by not supporting a bogus bill. I wish they would hammer that home now. Cutting a million illegals every 90 days down to half a million every 90 days and giving them work permits on top of it? What the hell does that do to fix anything? I love the show. Sign Cliff. To your calls. Let's start with Matt. Hey, Matt, you're a naysayer. What do you and I disagree about that makes you a naysayer tonight?
8: Well, I think California ought to do the $50 an hour. I think everybody on the West Coast ought to do the $50 an hour basic wage.
3: How would that help anyone?
8: Well, uh... So then uh, when everybody gets their $50 an hour basic wage and uh, nobody can afford it, then we'll get rid of all the Democrats and we'll be (laughs) back to uh, Republicans.
3: (laughs) You may be right, because you know what happened, Matt? If you walk into any small business that uses any minimum wage workers, and surprisingly, there aren't that many minimum wage workers in America. I haven't looked recently. But it used to be about 800,000 people out of about 168 million working Americans. It's a relatively small number. But the effect it would have, if the minimum wage went to 50 bucks and you were paying a young man or woman a buck or two above the minimum wage, they would say, well, now I want two bucks above the new minimum wage. I want $100,000. And you know what every one of those business owners would do immediately? They'd say, I'm going to have to lay everybody off and close my business down. There's no way. Exactly. No way that it
8: could. That's what I'm saying, Lars, is that once everybody realizes that these yo-yo Democrats are, are taking us out of business and their business shuts down, so then they'll just have to shut up and let the Republicans take over and go. Let's let's do uh, something that's realistic here.
3: Except Matt, can I, I, I just? There's a fly in the ointment on this one, and let me tell you why. There are a lot of these scenarios where you say, "Well, let them run into the brick wall, and then afterwards we'll pick up the pieces." The problem is, in the short run, say you put that r- rule that law in place for six months, and at the end of six months, everybody said. This is a terrible idea let's let's go back to the way it was before. Matt, what businesses would be left at the end of six months of that
8: exactly, and that's what I'm saying Lars they're they're putting they're shooting themselves in the foot and let them do it I,
3: no I, except, I, I except, Matt, saying, but I'm do you, saying th- let them do you it. think do you think the average small business owner the person has to sign the front of paychecks, the person has to make the bills at the end of every month, the person who's got a lease on a small storefront where they run their little operation, how many of those people would be able to survive those six months? How many instead would default on their lease, default on their mortgage, default on all the paychecks they're giving to employees, fire all their employees who then scattered to the wind? And six months later, when you say, well, turn it all back on now, what would be left to turn back on?
8: Well, maybe well, what would happen would be that all the people that have gone out of business with, with the truism and the and the real mind of, of what a business takes to run yep, would move over to the east side and, and into Washington, D.C. and say, this is what it takes to run a business, and we have to start it all over again not the way that you're working
3: is not working but in the meantime you've done incalculable damage to uh... to entire state even if even if they said this only applies and there have been minimum wages in other places where it's one wage inside a major city and a diff a slightly lower wage outside but if you adopt a fifty dollar minimum wage in a major city what are you going to call the minimum wage in the smaller towns? Uh, is it going to be $40 or $30? Any of those numbers, I mean, the minute the businessman sees it, he's just going to say, I'm, he or she is going to say, I'm out of business at this point. I can't do one day because the money coming I, I in from a, my customers will not pay this bill.
8: I have a solution for you. What is it? Let's get rid of Obama and the democrats obama which am i i mean biden but let's get rid of let's get rid of obama and bidenomics and start over
3: i i wish there were a way to make that happen and if we can find one we're going to go there matt thanks for the call back in a moment
1: My wife. Interviews with authors, experts, and a healthy dose of opinion. Find it at LarsLarson.com.
3: Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. One of the most disturbing things about this invasion of illegal aliens into America is that we've got a Homeland Security Secretary now impeached but likely not to stand trial in the US Senate. We've got a president who won't fix the problem. We've got a Homeland Security Secretary who won't fix the problem. We've got cities like New York and Chicago and others that have said this is a crisis, except they won't call out the one person who can actually fix this. Meanwhile, on Capitol Hill and over at the White House, uh, the answer they're giving us is, well, this is a problem Republicans have to fix. Hold on a second. You folks are holding one of two houses of Congress, the White House, and you're telling us that it's our problem? The conservatives have to fix this? I thought we'd talk about it with Chad Caton, who is National Director of Operations for Veterans for America First. That is, Veterans for Trump. Uh, Chad, welcome back to the program.
0: Thank you, Lars. Great to be with you.
3: This really has a direct impact on the people that you serve at Veterans for America First because we're being told that veterans are being displaced so their places can be taken in shelters and other housing in major American cities from this invasion of illegal aliens. So now veterans are second-class citizens and illegal aliens, including a a really large number of criminals and possible terrorists, that they have greater rights than veterans do?
0: absolutely Lars, and and it's not really surprising because the minute that joe biden took office things at the va started becoming very 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 hard to do when donald trump came in and gave us the choice program it opened up the va to the point where i wouldn't have to wait 19 months for a eye exam simply to get a new prescription for glasses now they're doubling down by putting these illegals in halfway houses where veterans are trying to overcome their own trauma be it with alcoholism and uh, other illicit drugs or, or just the mental capability of taking care of themselves. They're being removed so that, that illegal people can have a nice warm bed as they are put out in the streets and have to make tent cities. It's disgusting and it's treasonous.
3: Well, let me ask you this. Do you think there's been a political calculation of the White House? And, and I'll say something, Chad. I know a lot of veterans. My stepson is a veteran. My father-in-law is a veteran. Mom and dad were veterans. They're gone now. But I don't imagine there are a whole bunch of liberals or Democrats or Biden voters among America's veterans. Do you think I'm generally right about that?
0: I, I, I pray for it every day because the people I served with aren't that stupid.
3: Well, and and so I guess the political calculation then is we're going to stick it to a population of Americans that most of us, reasonable people, have great respect for. You've put on the uniform, you picked up a gun, you did your job, you made sacrifices both during your service and after your service, and now I've come home to a country where I'm being told, well, we don't care about you because you know what? Most of you aren't going to vote for Biden anyway, so if we stick it to you to advantage a bunch of illegal aliens that I think they think will vote, for Joe Biden and will be allowed to vote even if they're voting illegally, they've said, hey, that's a good political calculation. We throw veterans under the bus. They were gonna vote for Trump anyway. We're gonna help out the illegals. They'll probably vote for us because we're the ones who let them in. Uh, it's a very simple and very uh, Machiavellian kind of calculation, isn't it?
0: Lars, you nailed it. And that's something that we talk about all the time. You know, we, we love to lift up our veterans and, and, and you know, as a society, I know people overtly respect our veterans, but the government, be it local uh, with first responders and veterans or state, it's easy how they can take a bunch of honorable people like veterans and they speak a good game when it's election time. But when it's time to actually put things in position or uh, policy in place to help those people, it goes by the wayside quickly. It's, get- it's double talk by the UNA party, if I will, if I could.
3: Chad Caton is the uh, National Director of Operations for Veterans for America First. And, and I guess the, the, the calculation I've done, I've looked at this and I've said, you, you can't do this to veterans. And yet I'm not hearing a giant hue and cry from the general population about this. Occasionally I'll hear citizens talk about it, but they seem not to recognize that there's a real, there, there's a real threat to veterans in this influx of illegal aliens. You
0: know, I think that comes back to the pride that veterans carry with themselves every day. There's not an overt group out there screaming from the rooftops. We do, but we're small, and we're a we're a small dichotomy of the of the nation's uh, uh, overall census, if you will. And the people, uh, the veterans themselves, aren't going to ask for help. They're not going to go out there and make that noise like a, a BLM or, or one of these overt crazy groups. The, that. That is where we have a problem, where we need our government to do what's right by the people that have, that have put their hand in the air to keep the people of this country safe and sovereign. And they don't. And, and what we have right now is so many different things that we can scream from the rooftop that is coming from this particular regime that we don't know exactly which way to go. There's just a lot of screaming and all, not a lot getting done. I mean, you said it yourself. The Senate's going to be a joke. There's, we've got to – needs to be removed immediately. They got it barely through the House. And you know as well as I do, it's going to be uh, a joke in the Senate and everybody's going to go along their ideological lines.
3: Well, see, I agree with you on that, Chad. And by the way, before I miss the opportunity, because sometimes I'm stupid and I do this, uh, I want you to tell my audience how they can help out Veterans for America first and maybe even join your organization or help out the veterans through your organization. How do they do that?
0: We've made it super easy and took took away all the stink of a lot of these political groups. And what all you have to do is go to veteransfortrump.us, hit sign up, and if you're a veteran, it'll tell you to fill out your information so that you can be a part of our coalition. And then if you're not a veteran, we still want you to uh, give us your information so that we can let you know where to stand with us. You're not going to be asked for fundraising. We are not going to go out there and and ask you every 10 minutes for a text message to send us money. We are basically going to tell you where we need you, what needs to happen, and what's going on in your particular area or nationally so that we can get behind it as a group at Veterans for Trump. And again, the website is veteransfortrump.us.
3: Now, uh, my stepson was in the Marines, so I have a a special soft spot for the Marines. But it's one of the things I admire the most. When you've got things like uh, the Marines Toys for Tots, and they say not a dime of anything goes to us, all of our efforts are volunteer, all of our, you know, in other words, they don't ask for anything. They say everything goes to the cause, which is exactly what we expect from veterans. The last thing is about that trial. Because, Chad, this is the one that gets under my skin, because all these politicians, including Republicans, are, well, there's not going to be a trial in the Senate. Why not? Why don't we say, you have to vote. If you want to vote to keep Mayorkas in office, you go right ahead and vote. And if the Democrats are foolish enough, along with probably some sellout Republicans, and I can think of a few starting the list with Mitt Romney, they'll say, oh, we'll vote to keep him in there. Fine. Go ahead and make that vote. And then we're going to remind you for the next six election cycles, you voted to keep a guy in his position who has massively failed America. Uh, But but allowing them not to have a vote at all is simply not acceptable. Last word to you, Chad. Well, I
0: couldn't agree more. Be the people, it says be the people stop the Constitution, not them and their people. And when they do that type of thing, they do not give the be the people an opportunity to see who is not actually representing the people, including whether you're a Democrat or, or a Republican. This is about good and evil in a sovereign country and the idea that we have somebody that refuses to shut our borders. This is something that needs to be more of a moral vote.
3: Absolutely right. Chad came The Lars Larson Trump. Show
5: okay it's
0: a nice ride it's gonna happen stand by playback I know
1: I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show.
2: Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce.
1: Honestly, provocative talk radio.
2: More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the team in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women.
1: Lars. Never apologize be a
3: patriot our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen
1: this is a dark day no here's your host my memory is so bad i let you speak lars larson
3: welcome back to the lars larson show it's a pleasure to be with you i want to tell you something because i don't think we recognize america's heroes often enough but america lost a great hero yesterday a young man who grew up hunting deer and then made his mark by hunting men. Marine Corps Sergeant Chuck Mawinney called Vietnam the ultimate hunting trip. A friend of his who knew that I had met Sergeant Mawinney and that I admired Sergeant Mawinney emailed me yesterday to deliver the news that the single deadliest Marine Corps sniper in history had passed away at his home. Mawinney was born in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, He graduated from high school in 67 during the Vietnam War, and that's when he got his draft notice. And a recruiter had promised him that the Marines, if he signed up with the Marines, would let him go after deer season. So he ditched his plans to be an aviator. It's not a surprise that a teen who grew up hunting where long shots are the rule would end up at the Marine Corps sniper school, which is where he went sent to Vietnam he exceeded all their expectations 103 confirmed kills and 216 probable kills in just 16 months in Vietnam and just remember every one of those kills likely saved the lives of scores of his fellow Marines well he came home after his service and he was so quiet about it that years later when a reporter finally came to ask him about his story some of his neighbors didn't even know he'd been in the military nor that he had served as he did. So he passed away yesterday at the age of 75. Rest in peace, Sergeant Chuck Mawinney. I wanted to talk to about Jim, uh, to Jim uh, Lindsay about this, because Jim is the author most recently of The Sniper, the untold story of the Marine Corps' greatest marksman of all time. I realize I stole a little bit of your thunder, Jim, but but I just... Uh the day I met this man and it was at one of the Marine Corps balls that they held they hold every November the 10th I I'm not a former Marine but uh but I was invited to speak at several of them and at one of them I met Sergeant Mowenyi but you got to know him a whole lot better than I ever did so would you mind sharing some of that with my audience?
2: You bet. Um uh, I'm uh twice as lucky as you. I got to meet him twice. Uh, first of all, first time was about 1980, my brother and I bought a ranch in eastern Oregon, and I went over there, and uh, uh, Chuck and I bumped into each other, and we had a lot in common as as far as our age, and we both liked drinking beer, and um, we're kind of both outdoorsmen. So uh, we got to be pretty good friends, but he didn't, had never told anybody about this, so um, I had no idea that he'd ever been in the Marines or anything like that, and so uh, after 20 years over there, I got well, we kind of got separated. I don't know uh, how f- for sure, but um, I come I came back home, and I was here. And one night I was watching the TV, and my gosh, there he was, you know, and he was being interviewed. It was. History Channel or something, and they talked about all these things he had done in the Vietnam War, and uh, I was just shocked. Well, by then I'd been, I'd, I'd taken up writing. I'd I'd written a book, and I was writing another book, and so I called him. I run him down through some friends, and he remembered me, and so uh, so, so we decided to write a book together about him and and his uh, what he did over there, and we both agreed to start. To write his whole life story, so it starts in uh the uh, lakeview oregon area, and where he started school uh first grade and and it he before that they left his family lived with uh, his grandfather and he's his grandfather got him a BB gun taught him how to shoot, and he just picked up a he um he could shoot, he told me he could shoot flies off the wall of the barn, <laughs> and so so he gets into school and uh, and he runs into this another kid, kind of kind of a wild and crazy kid too, that named Dennis, and they got twenty twos pretty soon, and they had, and Chuck got a motor scooter, and they go up in the mountains, and they and they were just young kids, and they'd stay up there for three or four days, uh, and then uh, and then he got an airplane. He got actually got an airplane license, and uh, he his father had some friends, and they owned this plane, and they didn't use it. And Chuck got a license, and and uh, d- he'd get Dennis in, and they'd, they'd take off around the fields of Eastern Oregon and shoot uh, rabbits out of the window from a he, plane,
3: from a plane, hundreds yeah. of feet in the air, right?
2: Well, that's it's. Uh, unfor- I mean, he was a little bit lower than that, I think. Oh, he okay. Have been. maybe
3: the FAA would not approve but he was apparently an accomplished pilot as well as being a crack shot from a moving vehicle that even the lightest planes only only uh they only will uh I think they stall below 50 or 60 miles an hour so imagine trying to shoot a rabbit out of a moving vehicle from the air
2: yeah they went through a lot of ammunition and they'd use it to scout deer and so and at the meantime he's he's going through high school and he's uh He's like a service station kid. You know, he um it wasn't he was a pitcher on the baseball team, but other than that, they they're pretty much Dennis and him and some other friends were into cars and motorcycles and he worked and, and Shark worked at the Ford garage after school and uh and he liked drinking beer and he got, and just get he just gets caught. um Dennis and him got caught over and over again and his dad was a uh, uh he was a uh, a dep- he was a police. It worked in the police department. He was a policeman. Oh, my God. And it was really embarrassing. And so finally, about the time Chuck was going to get uh, out of high school, they they captured him. And uh, was a trunk load of beer. And they put him in jail for the weekend. So maybe that would help him. And uh, during that time is when he decided that when he got- as soon as he graduated, he better leave town. So he... So he ended up going and, he, and accidentally joined the Marines, and he wanted to be an aviator. So then he goes to goes uh, down to <clears throat> San Diego to boot S- camp.
3: MCRD, and, yeah,
2: yeah. Just love shooting, and he, well, they were going to have this test for aviation, and him and two other guys went out on the town, and they woke up. Chuck woke up in a movie theater at five in the morning, Uh-oh. and he and, so he flunked the test. Well, then he was going to have to wait around for a month for the next test to wash dishes. And this scout sniper school opened up, and so he loved shooting. And uh, he had done really well. So, I mean, he, he was—they took him happily, took him into it. Uh, he was good at it. And that's a tough school. It's all about knowing where you're at at all times, day and night. And <clears throat> and he just took to it. He was just uh, a natural. And <clears throat> so then he went to Vietnam and as a sniper, but they weren't looking for snipers. So he had to be a regular uh, grunt uh, over there until he finally talked his way into a sniper platoon at An <clears> Hoa, <throat> which is just 20 miles from Da Nang.
3: Unbelievable. You can read the whole story in the book, The Sniper, the untold story of the Marine Corps' greatest marksman of all time, Sergeant Chuck Mahoney, who served in Vietnam, greatest number of confirmed and probable kills, and he did not just 16 months. He passed away this week, the day before Valentine's Day, at the age of 75. Back in a moment, you're listening to The Lars Larson Show.
1: For real red meat radio, the Lars Larson Show.
3: Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Along with everything else, the Biden administration seems intent on destroying America, destroying us with the inflation, destroying us by lack of energy. And now there's another front for that attack, and it's not as visible as the gas pump or the bill you get when you go to the grocery store. It is, in fact, America's spirit of innovation and invention and protecting those inventions. Because after all, if you explain to people why we have a system of patents and copyrights, it's because if somebody sits in his or her garage or basement or wherever they do it, and they come up with something really unique, They have to be able to protect that intellectual property, to think about it simply, and if they can't protect it and there's no benefit from it, then why sit in your garage or your basement for the next 10 years trying to come up with the proverbial better mousetrap? Andre uh, Iancu, who is a former Trump administration and undersecretary of commerce for intellectual property, joins me now. Andre, welcome to the program. Lars, good to be with you again. I want to ask you about this. There is a uh, there is an effort to try to protect American innovation. It's the uh, Buy dole Act, and we can talk about that in a moment. But first, I I want you to describe uh, so that my audience will believe this, that the Biden administration is trying to say you may have a patent. You may have a copyright more focused on patents than anything else. But this will allow the government to walk in and simply say, we're going to relicense that patent. It doesn't belong to you anymore. Is that true?
9: That is exactly right. Uh, The Biden administration just recently put out a proposal where they would effectively seize uh, patents. And uh, this is an attempt to effectively nationalize and control the prices of new innovations.
3: And why what are they saying is the good reason for violating patent law and copyright law that's been around for hundreds of years?
9: Well, uh, the reason for this latest proposal, and uh, we should get into exactly what, uh, what the proposal is, but sure. the, the stated reason is that uh, they think this would help lower the, price, uh, the prices of drugs, of pharmaceuticals. Um, however, the reality is that what they're proposing here is not going to reduce the price of anything, number one. Number two, it will actually depress innovation, and we're going to have... Fewer drugs to begin with and most importantly the proposal applies to all technologies all technologies you know they 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 give examples of vehicle to everything communications like telecommunications between vehicles um you know uh water safety and water purification systems and the like it's broad-based and it would impact the entire economy
3: okay so so they're arguing that if a pharmaceutical company, and I know that I've, I've not received a dime from a pharmaceutical company. Uh, in fact, I have to buy some pharmaceuticals myself and and, and uh, they can be expensive. They can also be inexpensive, but they would walk into a pharmaceutical company that may have put on average $1 to $3 billion into developing a new drug of some kind to treat, uh, to treat some ailment or, or uh, uh, cure some disease. Uh, and they would say, you put in all that money But we're now going to take over that patent because some small fraction of the money came from the federal government. So therefore, we're going to tell you, you are not allowed to sell those drugs at the price that will recover all the money you put into them. We will tell you what they're allowed to be sold at. That's what the government wants to do.
9: Exactly. And it's important to note that this applies to, as you have indicated, to patents that have been developed at least in part with some federal funds. Now, there is no limit on that. So even if the federal government contributed a single dollar and industry contributed $2 billion, which, by the way, is the average cost of bringing a new drug to market, doesn't matter. Just because they've contributed a, a single dollar, that would enable the government to what's called march in and take over this particular patent.
3: All right, and That's it would mean proposal. that any company that was that says... Gee, we put uh, $2 billion in that last drug, and then the government came in and said, you have to sell it at a price that won't even recover what you put in. That means the next time the pharmaceutical company is saying, we might be able to uh, bring this drug to market, but the average time, I think, is 12 years now. takes a long time, and there's all the government red tape that goes with it. That's what adds up a lot of the cost, that they'd say, are we going to put another $2 billion into something else that we're not going to get back? And they're going to make the very easy decision to say, nope. We're just going to sell the stuff we've already got, uh, where we already have patents, uh, and and not drop billions of dollars to developing new drugs. Absolutely. It would depress innovation. It would depress investment in new technology.
9: Look, the reality is that innovation, by definition, is risky. It's new. You don't know if it's going to work. In the drug space in particular, it's especially risky, and 9 out of 10 new potential drugs don't make it out of... of, uh... of the research and development lab um, for one reason or another So it's risky it takes a long time as you've indicated to develop a drug and it costs again billions of dollars to bring it out most importantly once the drug is actually out the formula it's really easy to reverse engineer and if if it's not protected by a patent or the rule of law then anyone can go ahead and reverse engineer a drug immediately upon its release. So um, these systems of laws that go back to the founding of this country, the patent system is in the Constitution itself, um, is the one thing that allows a free market economy uh, to be able to operate and create and invest in and create new technology. Without this, who in their right mind would risk um, uh, would risk their capital on such on such risky business.
3: I'm talking to Andre Iancu, who's a former Trump administration and undersecretary of commerce for intellectual property, about the Biden administration's <laughs> effort to try to say, if the government has even a dollar involved in the development of this new thing, at this point, drugs, but it could, as you point out, extend to everything else. So this would extend to every other patent where some, where the government could argue, well, some of the research you used come up with that new device or that new computer code or whatever it is that is the new innovation. It came from government basic research at a local university. Uh, And so they, they will have a chance to lay claim, it sounds like, to virtually any new development out there unless you could find one where you could prove that there was no government involvement at any level through a university, through the federal government, through the NIH or anybody else they unless you could prove you were clean of any any government involvement financially at all your patent is at risk right
9: absolutely and and we do not have to guess at this in the framework itself in the document that the uh, the government put out itself just a few weeks uh, a few weeks ago it says expressly and i'm quoting lars i'm quoting the framework is not meant to apply to just one type of technology or, pro- or patent. or patents. So, um, on its face, it applies to everything. Now, this obviously includes pharmaceuticals as we, as we have discussed, but it also includes things like new energy sources, new battery technologies, computer chips, Silicon manufacturing. Think about this just last year, The government passed uh, the Congress passed the Bipartisan Chips and Science Act, okay, and the president signed it into law. This is a multi-billion-dollar giveaway that uh, uh, that is meant to encourage American industry to invest more in developing new chip technology. Now, think about this: on the one hand, they're giving this money away. And on the other hand, they're telling the people who are taking this money, American companies who take advantage of the chipsack, that if you do take this money and you do develop something good with it, we, the government, might come in and take
3: it away. Unbelievable. Andre, thank you very much. That's Andre Yanku, who's a former undersecretary of commerce in the Trump administration for intellectual property. The Buy dole Act would head off the Biden administration at the pass. Back in a moment, you got the Lars Larson Show. If you want to join what we call the best conversation in talk journalism, it's always right here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line. We've always done it. We always will. If you want to send an email, talk at LarsLarson.com. You can also vote in our poll on X. It used to be called Twitter, now it's X. You'll find that at Lars Larson Show. And you can check out our Instagram feed. All the other social media we put up, every single interview on the program is free of charge. You'll find it at LarsLarson.com.
5: The Lars Larson Show.
1: Brutal Honesty, whether you like it or
3: not, with Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and your emails at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. I just love seeing the liberals in Washington, D.C. as they complain about conservatives banning books because we're actually not suggesting banning books. We're just saying that in schools, especially government-run schools, maybe kids shouldn't be seeing books and materials that are uh, age-inappropriate. And if you're somebody who doesn't understand that, don't have kids until you do, because you have to understand there are certain things that young kids should not see. But while the Biden administration has been saying, oh, these evil conservatives are trying to ban books. What was the Biden White House trying to do, uh, especially during the first year uh, when the pandemic was still ongoing and there was a desperate effort to go out and convince everybody to take the jab, which, by the way, I have not. So I may have a dog in the fight. I wanted to talk about it with Casey Maddox, who's vice president for legal and judicial strategy at Americans for Prosperity. Casey, welcome back to the program. Hey, thanks for having me on. So what was the Biden White House trying to do uh, in terms of pressuring Amazon and books it was selling?
10: Yeah, this uh, basically this, the story that broke uh, just uh, I think the uh, uh, end of last week uh, is that the Biden administration was uh, pressuring Amazon um, over uh, books that were being sold on on Amazon that they thought uh, were uh, contra the, the narrative uh, that they were trying to cast concerning COVID. And so they were pressuring Amazon either to remove books uh, from Amazon or at least to uh, demote the books in the search results that you would get uh, on Amazon because they didn't like the content uh, in those books. That sounds a whole lot like um, a book ban. Um, That's not government deciding uh, what it's going to use uh, books for and which curriculum or, or something like that. That's government actually trying to make it uh, impossible for you to purchase a book or at least very difficult to find a book. And that's um, a particularly concerning thing coming from the federal government.
3: Yeah, especially since they have to operate under the First Amendment. I mean, I guess in 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 old school, before the uh, advent of Amazon and the Internet, it would have been like being able to go to Barnes and Noble, for example, and say, by the way, could you make sure that your stores don't carry this book as much? We're not telling you to take it off the shelves altogether, but don't carry as much of it and certainly put the book somewhere in a back corner where people are less likely to find it. That way the white house can preserve deniability, plausible deniability and say, we didn't ban the book. We didn't ask them to take it out of the store. We just asked them to put it somewhere where people weren't likely to find it and buy it.
10: Yeah, I I think it's exactly like that. Um, and, and this is, just the most recent version of something like this that the Biden administration has been doing. Of course, you also have uh, this this story that, that people have been connected to for some time about how they were pressuring social media companies uh, to delete users, uh, eliminate users, or, or at least uh, delete you know tweets or, or posts from users because of the content uh, from those users. And that case is actually going to the Supreme Court pretty soon. You've got a, a case that the court's going to hear about uh, whether the Biden administration violated the First Amendment. Uh,
3: by well, I mean, pressure. for instance, was, was part of that case Jay Bhattacharya, the doctor from Stanford, exactly who took right. a contrary, and I tended to agree with Dr. Bhattacharya, but he uh, he took a contrary view, and since he was an outcast, they didn't make him quite drink hemlock, but, but they came as close as they could in the modern version.
10: No, that's exactly right. And so when you put these stories together, you're left with... Um, you know, a, a story of a, of a administration here that uh, its response to ideas that it doesn't like seems to be to try to coerce private businesses, private companies, uh, to do its bidding um, and censor those ideas rather than engage with them.
3: And by the way, since you're in charge of legal and judicial strategy, you're an attorney, right, Casey?
10: I, I am. I, okay. I have the misfortune of being an attorney.
3: <laughs> well, we make fun of attorneys all the time, but I'm not. But I've told my audience before that anything the government is forbidden to do because it violates the civil rights, the constitutional rights of Americans, it also cannot do through someone who becomes its agent. In other words, if the D.A. can't kick your door down and search your house without permission, the D.A. can't ask one of your buddies or one of your enemies to go kick the door down for him and go search your house, saying, well, he's not constrained by the First Amendment if he uses somebody else as an agent. It's the same thing. It's still a violation of the constitutional rights by the government, isn't it?
10: Yeah, absolutely. The government can't do indirectly what it can't do directly. And that's a very basic principle of constitutional law, but it's one that this administration seems to be uh, be forgetting. And it's very important, especially as the government grows more and more and more powerful, especially the federal government. As it becomes more powerful, it's particularly important to remind it that just because it has relationships, and uh, regulatory relationships with all of these private entities, it doesn't get the power to use them
3: to its will. Because in Amazon's case, or any uh, online retailer or information provider, they all sort of operate at the whim of the government. The government could change the rules of the game. Section 230, they could change a lot of things that would have a detrimental effect on the company. So when they get a call from somebody at the White House or inside the administration somewhere, even if it's not the White House, they understand these are people who can punch our ticket anytime they want.
10: No, that's absolutely true. And it's why, you know, part of the interesting, uh, maybe heartening, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll add the, uh, the, the hopeful part of this story is that in both the social media cases, and especially here with Amazon, Amazon pushed back against the government and said, no, we're not going to remove books um, from our platform. And even in the social media cases, while a lot of content was uh, censored, one of the things that comes out of those cases is that um, more than people, I think, would expect, you had the social media companies going back to the government and saying, these things don't violate our policies. Um, And it was only after a lot of pressure from the federal government that uh, these platforms started uh, removing content. Uh, So it's at least hopeful that you see these private businesses that I think a lot of people would not expect to have stood up to the government uh, were at least standing up to them. Um, But that doesn't change the fact that you have the Biden administration itself. uh, You know, again, its response to to bad ideas was to try to go uh, to, to to attempt to censor those ideas. And that's troubling
3: well and and here's the other thing casey i'd like to ask you about and that is so you've got the administration doing this what was driving them to do this because i understand that joe biden is saying hey take the shot you can't catch COVID. a lie Uh, take the shot you won't go to the hospital a lie we want people to take the shot we don't want people selling books that cause people to be skeptical if you really believe you're on the side of the angels then why not just say sell all the books you want we're going to tell people this is good for them what was driving them to be to go to the point of violating the First Amendment of the Constitution by trying to censor books in a way so that people saw them less? You know, in order, I understand why the Biden administration wanted to hide the Hunter Biden laptop. Why were they so, were they so anxious to hide books that were skeptical about the jab? You know, it, it's
10: uh, it, it's perplexing. Uh, you you have. the the loudest voice that you could possibly have. You have the the weight of the federal government behind you. So you can get your own message out. You can make the case for what you believe uh, is true. um, And you don't have to censor, uh, you know, people who who disagree with you. You have plenty of opportunities to be able to express yourself. Um, And so, and all this does, by the way, um, is look when the Biden administration is right about a public health uh, issue. All it does is, is, diminish the confidence that people have in the institutions that we need to have confidence in for public health reasons. If the Centers for Disease Control, which does good work in a lot of cases, but if the Centers for Disease Control um, and other parts of the the federal government are going to be agents of censorship rather than, um, you know, explaining the science and doing it in a credible way, all it's going to do is when there's actually something that that we need to know about. When there's a a health concern that we need to know about, you've torched all of your credibility.
3: Absolutely right. That's Casey Maddox. He is Vice President for Americans for Prosperity. Casey, it's always a pleasure. Back in a moment, you're listening to The Lars Larson Show.
1: Best conversation and talk journalism at
3: 866-HEY-LARS. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And if you want to jump in, it's 866-HEY-LARS. Naysayers go to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Emails go to talk at LarsLarson.com. You can vote in our poll on X. You'll find that at Lars Larson Show and on our website at LarsLarson.com. I want to mention a name you probably haven't heard me talk about recently, although we have talked about Tony Bobulinski. Now why is Tony Bobulinski so very, very important? It's because there is an impeachment proceeding going against Joe Biden. A lot of you might and have wondered to me, well, why are we impeaching Mayorkas? Why aren't they impeaching Joe Biden? He's clearly committed high crimes and misdemeanors. Well. Some of the testimony that was taken from Tony Bobulinski, a lot of us have said Congress needs to get Tony Bobulinski in front of a congressional committee under oath and giving testimony about what he knows about the Biden crime family. Well, guess what? Tony Bobulinski gave that testimony and he gave it this week. And he even complains about it. He says, look, for four years, I've tried to tell the American people the truth about serious corruption at the very top of their government. That's the way he opened up his testimony to people in the House of Representatives, because there were people on both sides of the aisle, Republicans and Democrats. They did a closed door session in which they heard from Tody Bobolinsky, who's a former business associate of Hunter Biden. And why is that important well he was associated both with hunter biden and also with Devin archer Devin archer has given some pretty devastating testimony as well so what do we know about the biden crime family at this point there is such a crowded news environment these days that one day you're hearing about joe biden's theft of classified documents and i really wish the mainstream media would refer to it as theft because he stole documents I've told you that I define stealing as taking something that you have no legal right to take that does not belong to you. Well, Joe Biden stole classified documents for a period that is just short of 50 years. He admitted himself that he began taking classified documents about 50 years ago in 1974, and he's admitted that in on tape. But I think he loves these these distractions from the central issue, and that is, Is Joe Biden sold out to uh, foreign interests in Ukraine, in Moscow, even in Beijing, in Kazakhstan? Well, I want to tell you what we know about this, and I'll be glad to get your calls. At 866-HEY-LARS, that's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. What have House Republicans put together in actual documented facts, most of it coming in in the last 12 months? A lot of this should have been looked at in 2019. The FBI had Hunter Biden's laptop in 2019. They very clearly saw that it was, number one, real, number not a Russian creation. Number two, that it belonged to Hunter Biden. He's finally fessed up that the computer belonged to him. And what was on that computer? It was information about the business dealings that he conducted in which he sold the Joe Biden name. Not Hunter Biden. He was selling his dad's name because at the time his dad was vice president of the United States. And he'd been made the lead guy for Barack Obama on China and on Ukraine. And it turned out to be amazingly profitable for the Biden crime family. Number one, they've now documented that the Biden family and its associates received more than $24 million over a five year period beginning in 2014 and ending in 20. 19 so some of that came in after joe biden left the office of the vice presidency but it was very clear that he got the money because of favors that he did during the time he was vice president the biden family itself if you take out the money that actually went to their associates they got about 15 million dollars of that sum and if you've ever wondered how a guy like joe biden who's never had a real job in his life he came out of school, he ran in politics, he was then in the Senate for several decades, he was vice president for eight years, and now he's president of the United States. As a senator, he made between one hundred dollars and $180,000 a year. So how does a guy with that kind of income, a healthy income for an average American, but not a get-rich income, how does a guy like that end up owning several homes worth millions of dollars? How does he end up having the kind of E- you know, economic situation that most people would think they died and gone to heaven if they got it. Well, former Biden associate Tony Bobolinsky showed up before the Congress Tuesday of this week, testified behind closed doors. And what Bobolinsky said is that the president was not only aware of the influence peddling where his son was saying, I've got Joe Biden's ear. I can get my dad to do favors for you. And he sold that and demanded millions of dollars from the people he was doing business with. So here's what Bob Linsky said in his opening statement. It is clear to me that Joe Biden was the brand being sold by the Biden family. He's given the testimony at long last. His family's foreign influence peddling operation from China to Ukraine and elsewhere sold out to foreign actors who are seeking to gain influence and access to Joe Biden and the United States government. Joe Biden was more than a participant in and a beneficiary of his family's business. He was an enabler, despite being buffered by a complex scheme to maintain plausible deniability. That's from Tony Bobulinski's opening statement. Now, if you wonder, Lars, why should I give a damn about this? What difference does it make today what Joe Biden was doing a decade ago as vice president of the United States? Here's where it matters. I want you to pay attention to what Joe Biden is doing to America's energy future. America is a country that God has blessed with endless energy. We have hundreds of years of coal. We're not going to use them. We have hundreds of years of natural gas. We're not using it. We're cutting down the use dramatically, even though for all those climate change uh, worriers, uh, natural gas is one of the best ways to clean up the environment you would ever get. So why is this important now? Joe Biden has decided that America is going to throw out use of coal and natural gas and oil. In fact, he proudly proclaimed at his State of the Union address that in 10 years, America won't even be using oil. He plans a quick changeover to electric, electric cars, electric heat, electric stoves, electric everything. And how's that going to happen? America's energy today is largely provided with fossil fuels, coal, oil, natural gas. Joe Biden plans to abandon all of that stuff we have in abundance. And what are we going to power America with instead? We're going to power it with electricity from solar panels made in China, windmills made in China. And believe me, American car companies are now discovering they can't sell electric vehicles and make a profit. Ford loses fifty to $60,000 every time they sell an electric car they made. But who can make those cars at a price cheap enough to be attractive and still make money? Well, that would be Joe Biden's buddies in communist China. And all he's got to do is lift the tariffs and those Chinese electric vehicles will come in. We will be wholly dependent on the Chinese communists who bought out the Biden crime family years ago with millions of dollars. You've got the Lars Larson show.
5: The Lars Larson Show.